Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, I get to talk to Clay Jenkinson about his upcoming cultural tours, particularly one to France. This will be our third time taking a group of well-wishers to Jefferson's France, uh, several days in Paris and a number of days in the south of France where Jefferson fell in love all over again with classical antiquity and classical architecture. We get to talk about his love of French cuisine and culture, but we also talk about the influence French politics had on Jefferson. Jefferson saw the failure of the French system as a warning to the United States, and he wrote a series of extremely important, even radical letters to his closest friend, James Madison, saying, we must not let this happen to us. All that plus a great deal about Lewis and Clark on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events and history with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I, I've often wondered why it was that France was so important to you. I, I think it's safe to say that it it had a great deal to do with uh, the formation of your thoughts and perhaps the formation of our nation. Well, sir, it was the most civilized country in the world, well ahead of us in the ballets and into uh, literature and poetry, and for that matter, dance, music, sculpture, painting. You know, the Renaissance we associate with Rome and Florence, but the Enlightenment. Uh, we associate with France, and and so it is the acme of all cultural achievement in, in the modern world. The, the best art in the world is displayed there. The best artists live there. Uh, so it, from that point of view, any person who loves the arts or who loves culture uh, must uh, pay respects to France. And then, of course, uh, the French, when it really wasn't in their interest, supported the American Revolution, both with uh, funds that they really didn't have and by sending some of the flower of their youth, inclu including, of course, Lafayette, to fight uh, for American freedom. And it's not that we wouldn't have won our independence without France, but we wouldn't have won it as soon or as decisively. And it's at least possible that the British would have been able to overawe us without the French connection that we established. And I thank uh, mostly Dr. Franklin for that. So those are two reasons that France is essential. But I probably never would have gone. Uh, but after my wife died, uh, the Congress of the United States appointed me to be a minister plenipotentiary to a number of courts in Europe, but to be stationed in Paris. And it was for that reason that I went there in 1784, I wound up spending five years there, and they were amongst the most remarkable years of my life. I will, I will freely admit that. Well, putting aside your love for French cuisine and, and their culture, how much of an effect did French politics have on you, sir, and, and, and what did you bring back with you? Well, that's a complicated question. Let me answer it in a couple of different ways. So French politics were mostly frivolous and futile. And they really weren't ready for their revolution. They needed the revolution. 
the people of France were being ground to powder by bad institutions, including the aristocracy and the priesthood. But they didn't have the capacity to really do this. At least the great majority of the people were, were childlike. They had not had the chance, as the British had, to to warm up with the Magna Carta and the British Bill of Rights and so on. So they were they offered us nothing by way of models of government. However, while I was there, because I was watching the collapse of, of monarchical France, I had the opportunity to think really carefully about certain fundamentals of civilization, how much national debt is useful and how much becomes crippling. What does one generation owe to its predecessors and owe to its children and grandchildren? children? Can there be a perpetual constitution? What happens when the wealth of a country is concentrated in a tiny number of families or individuals and, and the rest of the country is in want or even starving? How do you keep a civilization alive over time without it becoming corrupt? The French Revolution was staring me in the face, a you know, failed state. And my job was to try to understand it uh, both as a diplomat and as a scholar, and but more to the point, my job was to make sure that, if possible, we could avoid that very set of uh, dynamics in our own happy republic and never wind up uh, like France on the eve of its revolution. So it was a it was a kind of a negative exemplum of what can go wrong, and it was during that time that I wrote a series of letters home, but particularly to my closest friend, James Madison, really wrestling with these fundamental problems of civilization. That clears up a lot of my questions, Mr. President, and I thank you very much. Sir, you are most welcome. citizens and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm David Swenson and I'm joined today by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, it was a few weeks ago that you kind of turned the tables and interviewed me and I so appreciated and enjoyed that. This week, I'm going to do the same to you, sir, if I might. Well, I so congratulate you on your extraordinary project involving the late Francis Densmore, who came to the Great Plains uh, around 1910 to record Native Sound, and, and you've uh, done some pioneering work to bring that back to life, and not just for scholars, but for the Lakota, including Lakota children. So congratulations for that. Yeah, primarily for, for the Lakota, um, and thank you again. Uh, but this week, I want to talk about you. I want to ask you some questions involving, you know, people who've listened to the show uh, oftentimes hear you refer to cultural tours, etc. Um, and just to give us listeners some backstory, tell me how that all started and and what you do on these cultural tours, who attends and what you accomplish and the things you see. 
It goes back, David, to, I suppose, around 2003 when the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition was coming. And I was at an event in Lewiston, uh, Idaho, and met a woman uh, at a dinner where we just happened to be seated next to each other. And we both asked each other what we wanted to do during the bicentennial. And we both said it would be great to take people out onto the Lewis and Clark Trail to show them where Lewis and Clark slept and where they canoed and where they had difficulties and so on. So this began, and that's the source of all of the rest of it. Eventually then we did uh, Thomas Jefferson's Virginia. I've done that, I think, three or four times. And we've done Jefferson's France. This will be the third time on that. And then it branched out away from Lewis and Clark and Jefferson to Theodore Roosevelt and John Steinbeck and so on. And so the cultural tours, uh, it's just an idea that I didn't know it would work. And now, thanks to really great management uh, and our, and the website that you, our own friend uh, Nora handles, uh, we have waiting lists for all of the cultural tours. And so that's a deep delight. And then we finally... A few years ago, added the winter encampments at Laksaw Lodge because it's January, no one's out there. It's a perfect time to go and talk about books. So this has become a significant part of my life and career. As with almost everything in my life, David, it was sort of an accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when we first met in Bismarck, and you asked if I would fill in for a couple of shows on the Jefferson Hour. Here I am all these years Some later. Some 17 years ago. Yeah. Um, you weren't doing much of this at all. I mean, I, it, primarily you were on the road uh, lecturing and and performing as, as Thomas Jefferson. But this has really sort of morphed into a major part of what you do. It has, and I love it, by the way. And when I'm out on the Lewis and Clark Trail... I always say and mean that this is the best travel week of my year, climbing Wendover and canoeing in the White Cliffs yeah, section. I know, if I might interrupt, I know that you love this, but I have to say that the people that attend these uh, love it, and I know that because I read the emails, and um, you, you, you've kind of got, you've sort of developed a subculture of those who would brave that Wendover march and, and go out on the river. And, and it, it's not just Lewis and Clark now. No, you're, you're, you're quite correct. So speaking of subculture, um, some have come on the trip many times. And a few years ago, they had a reunion in, I don't know, Arizona or Santa really? Fe or someplace, really? to which I was not invited. It was like the tw 20 people that I brought together, sort of like, well, we're not bringing him. So well, they probably uh, figured you would never be able to come because you are so busy. I'm, well, I'm, of course, I'm everyone asks about you. I'm giving you a polite out on that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'll explain it as you will. But it's great because this this community now exists and they can, they have Zoom calls. I've also been doing these online courses and I've created another little community and they meet from time to time, like once every two weeks on Zoom. And I'm not, I'm not part of that. And I'm thrilled for this because, I mean, the whole point of my life has been to build a humanities community and to some limited extent, I have been able to do it. So that's, I, that's I good. You know, I'm glad you, you went there because, because that's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, I, I know you and I would, would stand with the statement that learning is one of the purest pleasures there is, and you should never stray from it. It keeps us alive, alert, and young. And and really, uh, you know, aside from all the adventure nature of, of the Lewis and Clark trips and, you know, this 
idyllic floating down the river in canoes and and uh, the the great care that people are taking uh it it is a learning experience um and you're sort of you're at the center of all of that <laughs> well the lewis and clark story is endlessly interesting um, in fact, I never get tired of it, and I've spent the last 30 years, I suppose, trying to understand what happened, especially what happened to Captain Meriwether Lewis, who appears to have committed suicide just three years after they returned. But it's not the kind of thing where you can kind of understand it and then you put that in a in a manila folder and, and bring it out every July. It keeps changing, so I gave this year some lectures I've never given before. I've undertaken some new Lewis and Clark editorial projects now, um, I uh, I was just made a list the other day for uh, for our mutual friend Russ Eagle, who's uh, one of the most stalwart um, joiners of of the Lewis and Clark trip, and now p part of the staff. But I made a list of what I think are my contributions to Lewis and Clark studies, and I was pretty surprised at you know if you have spent forty or thirty years at this, uh, you start to develop a real um, not, I won't say mastery because that would be too strong a term, but a, a very deep immersion into this world. And so I can tell everyone this, uh, uh, shamelessly, I'm the world's leading expert on Lewis and Clark in North Dakota. Of course, I'm the only one, but still, <laughs> I, I'm happy to be that person. And it, But let me just say this of the cultural tours. They're so magical, and I don't know what the magic is, but it's like the people who self-select to come, the places that we go... Um, there's a fair amount of instruction, but it's by no means academic or heavy. There's a lot of humor, as you know. Uh, there's a there's a lot of adventure and joy, and people sweat, and they and and they want to whine, but they don't because we have a no whining rule. But they exult because they <laughs> they climb hills that Lewis and Clark climb, and they canoe exactly. I mean, without any shadow of any doubt, precisely where Lewis and Clark canoed in the Great White Cliff section of the Missouri. So there's a sense in which people identify with. That adventure, that epic, I'd call it, in early American history, what James Ronda called America's first great road trip. But they also, they test themselves. Relationships are, are deepened. Some relationships are born. People, people's lives are changed by this trip. And it, I would love to say it's me, and I'm sure I'm in there somewhere, but it's mostly a combination of, of different factors. And so... It's the best thing I get to do. I know from what you've told me that it's changed your life. But, I, I, you know, there was a lot that you just said. If I can unpack just a little bit of it. I, I, to me, um, you know, there are, as you said, the first great road trip. This is the great adventure story of that era of America. Um, and, and people are fascinated by it and read about it. Um, but there's something different. Not when you're not just reading about it, but you're there. You know, I, I've never been on one of your tours. I have been on the trail and and tried to trace places and find places. There's something different when you're there, and you being the leader of all of this. And as you said, you've given a couple of new lectures that you didn't really even anticipate. What kind of things do you get to share with people? What kind of things do your attendees learn? Uh, because they're there. Well, they, first of all, understand the challenge of the expedition. So they're, as you know, they're carrying about 30 tons worth of stuff from St. Louis. 
and in three boats, a big barge and two uh, pirogues. And they, and they shed one of the barges, but they've got this flotilla. And eventually they get through the Great Falls in today's Montana and they get to the base of the Rocky Mountains. And Jefferson had sort of told them, yeah, they'll be about 4,000 feet high and there'll be a Cumberland Gap and they'll look a lot like the Appalachians. And Jefferson was no ninny. This was a standard view at the time. And they reached the base of the Bitterroot Mountains, the Rockies, and they're twice as high as they had been told and extremely thick and formidable. Fallen trees everywhere. Winter comes really soon in September and it stays until almost July. And so they hit the Rocky Mountains and they have no longer 30 tons of stuff, but maybe 15 tons. And there's no way all that's going across those mountains, even with the 41 horses that they were able to purchase from natives. And so one thing you learn when you're up there is what that meant. Because even climbing, we climb Wendover, which is seven and a half miles more or less straight up. It's not a Forest Service trail with switchbacks. And by the end of the day, you just wish you were anywhere but on that trail until you reach the top. And then you're like, hey, where's the whiskey? You know, where's the celebration? Where's the parade? I, I did what Lewis and Clark did. I'm, I'm a hero. Everyone feels that. I mean, you should see that night around camp. But my point is that everyone thinks, I went up there with a camelback filled with electrolyte and water. All the gear was taken up by trucks. I didn't have to bring horses through the snow. I wasn't wearing moccasins. I wasn't, you know, they, Lewis and Clark crossed the continent with inadequate footwear. So you get up there and you think, this was the hardest, uh, someone told me this year, this was the hardest physical thing that he had ever done. And this was a person who's been a lot of, you know, been a lot of places and hiked. And then when you get to the top, you realize, and that was nothing. That's like, that's luxury, Lewis and Clark. That's one thing. And then quickly, the other thing is when we're on the Missouri, on the, the first night we camp at Eagle Camp, where they camped, we know exactly where they camped. And the next day we go in our canoes and, and about 45 minutes in, I say, turn your canoes around. And all like 12 canoes turn around. And I say, go against the current for two minutes. <laughs> and at the end of those two minutes, people are cursing, and saying this, no, they couldn't have done it. It's impossible. That's a great exercise. That's that's really good. You need to come. Everyone asks about you. I, I I tell them that you are a very private person, but everyone wants you to come. I'm I'm a busy person, just like you. Listen, well, we ditto, we honey. need to take a short break, and I don't want to spend the entire program talking about Lewis and Clark, but there are some other things I want to ask you about, um, particularly the journals and the diaries, if that would certainly. be all right. Certainly, sir. Okay, well, well, we'll take just a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Uh, this week, I get to talk to Clay Jenkinson about uh, some of his career, some things that I wanted to ask him about. When we took our break, Clay, we were talking about your Lewis and Clark annual cultural tour, and it just sounds like so much fun. But I, I did want to ask you a bit about the diaries. I mean, how we know what we know. Of course, uh, the, the main source is the journals, and that's a long story. Uh, about how they never really were completed to Jefferson's requirements. But there were also some personal diaries that were left, correct? There are letters, a lot of them, and they were uh, edited by a man named Donald Jackson, one of the greatest of all Lewis and Clark scholars. And so there's a two-volume set of those. They're absolutely essential. And then there's the 13-volume journals of Lewis and Clark by the University of Nebraska Press, and that was edited by Gary Moulton, who is the senior Lewis and Clark scholar in the country now. And then there are some a few other things, but there are missing journals, and that's one of the really uh, remarkable mysteries of this thing. So a man named Robert Fraser, who was a private, kept a journal, and he was planning to publish it. He, he issued what's called a prospectus, in the papers, that it was soon to be forthcoming. It never did. I think we can blame Meriwether Lewis for that. Um, and several other diaries either never existed or have disappeared. So we don't have a complete record, but altogether it's 13 stout volumes plus two big volumes of letters. So we know more about this expedition than about any expedition in American history up until the Apollo uh, Gemini system, where, of course, we had other ways of of recording data. So it's a rich thing and you can spend your life doing it. In fact, I'm, I'm starting a huge new project on Joseph Whitehouse, the private. He's the only private whose journal exists. It's in the Newberry Library in Chicago. I'm going to be editing it. And it's extraordinary, David, because it, it, it looks like it's been run over by a fleet of trucks and dumped <laughs> in the river and you know bled all over and probably thrown has. in the air. Probably and, and so, yeah. And so it looks like a real journal and it's it's been neglected and you know you know this like in the 13 volumes of lewis and clark lewis and clark come first for the first i suppose eight volumes and then the lesser diarists ordway floyd gas come later and in volume 11 it's white house so you on let's say just take a day uh, on january 1st 1804 they were in north dakota they went to a dance at the mandan world if you if you if you study the journals you go to volume four for that and you read what happened with for, as lewis and clark saw it on that day but that doesn't give you what ordway saw that doesn't tell you what gas saw that doesn't tell you what white house saw you have to go to other volumes for that and that's a disincentive for people to read everything that happened on the same day so white house has been ignored and it turns out he's a very very interesting diarist in part because he was a private and not one of the officers well a couple of things i'm, I'm interested to know what the future of that uh, that diary and the editing is going to be when it'll become available. Um, the other thing is, is that, you, you know, you said earlier that uh, sort of in a joking way, but it's true that you are the leading Lewis and Clark expert on their time in North Dakota. You actually spent a great deal of time editing their journals, and that was published, wasn't it? For their time in North Dakota. The State Historical Society of North Dakota uh, commissioned me to edit the journals in the state. And, and by the way, in that issue, that edition, which starts on October 13th, 1804, and ends on 
August 20th, 1806, in other words, all the days that they ever spent in North Dakota, both coming and going, I, I print every diarist's view on the day that he wrote it. So you get Lewis, Clark, Ordway, Gas, White House. Oh, I remember seeing some of that, but I didn't realize that was that was a. So rule. that was yeah. kind of a revolution, although it's now um, also the form on the University of Nebraska website where it's free. You can read all of Lewis and Clark at the at the national website, uh, which is at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. But that's one thing. The second thing is I printed the weather on every day because they kept these weather charts. So every day that you see the weather, and it's really interesting because, as, as you know, as a North Dakotan, yeah. David, <laughs> not weather a matters. Not a great advertisement for visiting our state in the winter. Right? Yeah. No, but if, but if, if, if Clark says... Um, two men went out hunting this morning, came back uh, soon thereafter, uh, got nothing. That that means one thing. When you look at the weather, and oh, it was 29 degrees below zero and the wind was whipping at 40 miles per hour. Now suddenly you realize why they came back as quickly as they did. And so that was one of the things in that issue. And it's also heavily, heavily annotated. I think I wrote six or 700 footnotes for it. And I'm immensely proud of that. I also did at the same time, a little chapbook, which I think you've seen, day by day and it, it's a tiny little thing like a passport book but it, it. it has every single day that they were here a highlight so today sort of a, that was sort of a predecessor to what you did later right but don't this, this don't, is how i get ready uh, you know the, the only journal that i am really familiar with is patrick gas but th this white house journal that you're working on now is there a future for that or is it are you yes. just beginning there'll be a couple of years or maybe a year at least so it's in Newberry Library in Chicago. I've made an arrangement with them. And here's what's so great about it. It's an authentic field journal. It's not, you know, the Lewis and Clark journals are in the American Philosophical Society and they look pristine because they're copies made by Lewis and Clark after the fact. But this journal is weathered like a field journal should be. We can post a, a, a photograph of it on the website. What we're doing, and this is so great, this is, this is like a just-in-time technology. And this is such a gift that they're giving me. They have re-scanned every page at several thousand DPI. You know what that wow, means. Yeah. It means you could blow this up to the size of a building and you would still see uh, great detail. And then we're going to print it so that uh, the right-hand page will be a, a an exact size facsimile of that page in the most extraordinary resolution and detail. And on the left side, I'll produce a transcript. I'll retranscribe it. And have footnotes and, I, and introductory. I love work. books that are laid out like that, and I, 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 I mean, I, I can't think of one that would be laid out as extensively as what you just explained. But I love that. But imagine if you had this, and of course, I'll put one in your hands when it comes. But oh, thank you. Imagine if you have this, and you, and it's going to be a very high quality color printing. So let's, and it may, it may look a little bit like a coffee table book because of the size of the thing. But when you open it, and the, and the, let's say it's it's White House from. July 4th, 1804. So they're at Independence um, in at near Kansas City, um, just uh, just where Fort Leavenworth will eventually be built. And uh, Reuben Field was uh, bitten by a snake and his foot swelled up and they named this creek Independence Creek because it was the 4th of July and so on. So White House says all of these things. But when you look at that, when this is printed, David, you'll see the details in this. And it's way, way different to look at someone's handwriting than it is to look at the transcription, which will also be there. Yes. But let's say you were got, let's say you're, and you're the kind of person who would said, I want to, I, I wonder if I could see more. And you got out a magnifying glass. Today, that would give you nothing because it would pixelate. But this will give you more and more detail because of the incredible um, scanning resolution of these pages. So, 
and then there will be a there will be introductory essays, including one on 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 the journal as an artifact. And Whitehouse is himself a very interesting guy. He um, met Lewis and Clark at Kaskaskia on the Illinois side. Uh, he was a tailor. He was their skin dresser. Um, he uh, nearly was nearly killed uh, in southwestern Montana when a canoe rolled over him, and 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 he would have been killed if it had been even six inches shallower in that creek. Um, he comes back. He's discharged. He then went back into the army in 1812. He deserted in 1817, and late in his life, he gave or sold his journal, which had never been published, although it was prepared for publication, to a, a Catholic priest. And it eventually wound up in Wisconsin in the hands of none other than the great Reuben Gold Thwaites, the first great editor of Lewis and Clark. And for the first time in 1905, it was published um, by the University of Wisconsin Press. So that's White House. And, and here's the thing. Uh, David Nicandri, a frequent guest on this program and, and a dear friend of mine, who's an advisor to this project, uh, he believes that White House is often the most inter interesting diarist because he mentions things that nobody else sees or bothers to mention. And so... Uh, can you give me an example of that? Uh, Lewis Clark will say, um, six men went out hunting, one of them um, cut his hand. White House will say, it was uh, it was Potts, and, and he severely cut his hand, and we bandaged it and did this and that. In other words, and, and often he has kind of like a private's view of things, and he has a really one really weird quirk. I've started in on this now. He wants to name every place they're at. Lewis and Clark don't name the, the places very often that they're at where they camp, but he'll call it Cold Spring Camp or Rhubarb Camp or Wild Rose Camp. And, he, and why he did this, I don't know, because I don't know what if he expected these names to hold, but every almost every night when they camp someplace, he gives that camp a name. And I had never seen this. I've been at Lewis Clark for 40 years. I had never seen this. This is why it's so important, David, as you know from your work on Francis Densmore and other projects. Until you look at something, you've never looked at something. And then when you look at something, all sorts of things pop that you never, ever could have anticipated. And you need to use a lens. The lens you wear determines the thing you see. The lens you wear determines the thing you see. Just as when you have a new vocabulary word, you tend to see it all over the place after that. But until then, it was right there, but you didn't see it. And so now that I'm looking at White House exclusively, I'm asking myself, does he ever mention the name Sacagawea? Does he ever mention the dog's name Seaman? Does he ever complain about anybody or anything? Uh, does he ever talk about his own mishaps if he had them? Uh, you know, in other words, I'm looking at it in isolation. And one of the things I'm trying to do is ask myself, if everything else had disappeared and we only had White House's journal, what would we know about Lewis and Clark? And it's a fascinating mental project. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you, you have me. I'm, uh, I, I'm really excited to see some of this. Um, and uh, good work, sir, and keep at it. Well, I can't wait. You know, they sent me they sent me the files. I've been they they're they're coming in a flash drive this week by mail. But I wrote to the the director of 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 the library and said, ah, can, you know, it's it's Labor Day weekend. I really can't wait. Can you send me the file?" So they said, "Oh, yeah, okay." So they sent me the file. It's too big. My computer won't accept it. It downloaded, <laughs> but my zip it says, "No, we're not doing it. No, it's too big." And so I'll have to wait for the flash drive. I'll make you one. 
Okay, so I'm going to try to take control back of this conversation, if I might. Um, Certainly. It, it's hard once you get on Lewis and Clark not to just keep on. Well, you and on too. And We've and been on. at this. Yeah. This is how we met. Yeah. I came into your studio to record Dayton Duncan because he was in town. And, right. And, right. and I, didn't, I didn't really know you from Adam. I'd heard great things, but, but this but, was 20 but years ago. But back to your cultural tours, which is kind of where we started, you know, it's, it's not just Lewis and Clark in North Dakota and Montana. You do cultural tours literally all over the world. Well, a bit of the world. So, um, yes, I'm going to Greece next fall. So if you want to go to Greece, it's Homeric um, Greece. That's next fall, the fall of 2023. It's not posted yet, but boy, I hope we can get a wonderful group of people together for that. And then I've done twice before Jefferson's France. This will be the third time, and it's coming up in late September of this year. It's full, and we'll be spending 10 days in Thomas Jefferson's France, partly in Paris and quite a bit in the south of France where he encountered the classical world. But there's Cuba. We've been to Cuba. There's Greece. Greece is next year. We've been to Cuba. We go to Monterey, to John Steinbeck's um, Monterey. Yes, I mean, it, it, it never ends. I, I want to do um, Robert Oppenheimer's New Mexico and Colorado. Um, it's just such fun, but they take a while to organize. And as you know... And research for you, too. Well, that's the fun part of it. There's a, there's a distinguished literature on Jefferson in France, including a new book we had, we had him on, in fact... Uh, and there's uh, there's a lot, of course, on Oppenheimer. You could there will be a film coming soon, but on Oppenheimer, you could spend the rest of your life studying the birth of the atomic bomb and the tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Lewis and Clark, as you know, is is endless. There's Theodore Roosevelt, um, but Greece. You know, my first love was classics and literature, and I've kind of strayed. I tripped into history instead, but. I'm so I've gone back to literature now. Drift into I, history. <laughs> I did. It was Ev Elbers, our mutual friend, who 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 thrust me off the the righteous path into history. Uh, but I, this last week, not to digress, and I know you want me to talk about France, but I do. I I reread Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the greatest medieval poem of all, until Chaucer, and now I've been reading biographies of Elizabeth the First, and. I'm working on a maybe a novel based upon Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And so I'm kind of re I mean, I'm, I'm an old man now. I'm kind of reawakening to my first love, which was um, literature and, and the high humanities. Well, I, I did want to talk about France because uh, actually when this program, we're recording it uh, early in September, but when this airs, you will be in France. Yes. And there'll be 25 people or so. And the, 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 the title of this tour is Jefferson's France, right? Jefferson's France, right. Yeah. So he spent those five years there from 1784 to 1789. He got to see the beginnings of the French Revolution. There are a lot of monuments to Jefferson in Paris. There's a statue across from the Hotel de Somme, which was, became the model for the domed version at Monticello. There's a park that's, that's uh, named for him. Um, and we know where he lived, although the building has been torn down. We know several places that he lived. And, and the, there's the Palais Royal, which was the world's first sort of, it's like the Mall of America. It's half theme park, half mall, and so on. So we know a lot, and restaurants that he went to and so on. So we'll spend a few days in Paris. And we've you know worked with a, a company, the tour company, because they handle logistics. And then we'll go down to the south of France to Nîmes, 
where he saw the model for the capital at Richmond, the Maison Carré, which he said was the most perfect morsel of antiquity. And we'll go to Orange and uh, all in, in Nîmes and and um, and to uh, Montpellier and to uh, Aix-en-Provence and Marseille. So all of these places that Jefferson. And then we're going to. This is my indulgence. As you know, he spent a couple of days in northern Italy, uh, in Milan, uh, but then he turned back because he had such a, a sense of, of his um, of his diplomatic responsibility. But he called it a peep into Elysium. And when he went over the Alps into northern Italy, he actually tried to figure out where Hannibal had brought his elephants back in the ancient Roman world. And so we're taking the bus up to the pass where you look from, you look down into Italy, and that'll be our peep into Elysium. So these are these are just such fun, David. And of course, the accommodations are great. The food is world class. The wines are great. We'll also spend one day on the Canal de Midi, uh, where you know he spent a week on it and it was one of the happiest weeks of his life. And so, this is like, it's not really even about Jefferson, as the Lewis and Clark trips aren't really even about Lewis and Clark. It's a great cultural tour that happens to be centered on our friend, Mr. Jefferson. Yeah, you know, uh, just how important Jefferson is in France is a long subject for discussion. I'm going to do something I never do, and that's, quote, a letter from a lister. But I know I do that a lot, but I don't have the person's name uh, in front of me. But I remember the letter distinctly, and and he talks about being in France on the 4th of July and all of these wonderful uh, fireworks, and he talks to a, a French citizen and thanks them for noting the 4th of July, America's Independence Day. And the Frenchman looks back at him and says, don't you recognize that it's our celebration as well? I just thought That's that was great. Really, you know, I'm really apologetic to the person that sent that letter, and I should have their name, but it was a great letter. Well, David, you know that's so important because that's how Jefferson saw it too, that as you, you, can, you, you can anticipate the words that are about to come out of my mouth. The little flame that we lit on the 4th of July, 1776, will engulf all of the despotisms and tyrannies of the world. And so when the revolution hopped from Philadelphia to Paris, Jefferson was elated and he had such high hopes for the French Revolution, it didn't work out. Uh, And he was a little bit embarrassed by that later in life. But he thought that this was, we had started it, that the pivotal date in world history was going to be the 4th of July, 1776 and that France was the first, but they were all going to wind up being constitutionally based republics with due process and the rule of law and rights uh, traditions. And of course, that's mostly happened, but not entirely. And of course, here we're in some sort of a retrograde motion, aren't we? Yeah. We need to take a short break, but we'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation about Jefferson and many other things. Welcome back, Clay. Glad to be here, my friend. And I must tell you that during the break, it gave me an opportunity to look up that email, and I found it, sir. And it comes from Paul Grossgold, who's written to us many times. And this occurrence that I talked about happened in Cannes in the mid-90s. He was actually on a naval deployment on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And they spent the 4th of July in port. And he says, quote, the city treated us to a fireworks display on the beach one evening. And I asked one of our French friends why the city was doing the show. I asked if it was an early Bastille Day celebration. And then he writes, she gave me a strange look and said, this is for the 4th of July. It's as much our holiday as it is yours. And I I just wanted to uh, share Paul's name in that letter because I thought it was great. You know, there's so much disillusionment with the United States around the world. It's great to see affirmation of this sort. Yeah, he writes, it just never occurred to me that French participation in our revolution two centuries hence would still hold that much meaning for them. Such is the power of our experiment. So thanks for that, Paul. They were both, the French Revolution went sour, but it changed France permanently for the good. France is now a republic. That revolution was pivotal there, although it was a bloodbath for a time. Our revolution was more benign, although not without its moments. Uh, But these were two great events of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is the greatest thing that ever happened to human beings, and the Enlightenment had two magnificent societal expressions, one in France and one in the United States, and it gave birth to the Constitution of the United States, which, for all of its uh, wear and tear, is still uh, the great Constitution of the world. So back to your your tours. Now, you've done this um, tour of of France um, about Jefferson's time in France before, and as you said, you know, there are a lot of memorials, probably pretty much unknown to most Americans, to Thomas Jefferson, particularly in Paris. Uh, what kind of things do you make sure that you, those that uh, accompany you see? And what kind of things are you able to share with them? Well, we go to the statue and we and go to the Tuileries, which is the, the garden. Um, the, it's like Central Park that overlooks the Seine, the great river that flows through Paris and across is this building, which is now the um, headquarters of the French Legion of Honor, but it's called the Hotel de Somme. And when Jefferson was there, it was being built. And he says in a famous letter that he, to a, to a woman friend of his, that he would sit in a chair that he rented um, there in the Tuileries. And he said he, he would stare at the building of this domed um, neoclassical facade quote, like a lover at his mistress, <laughs> and that people around him thought he might be insane, um, you know, or, or he's going to commit suicide. Like... But, but he meant it, right? Oh, yeah. He, and, he, and he came back, and with money he didn't have, he plucked down Monticello, um, part of it, and rebuilt it with a dome, which wasn't finally completed until around 1808, when he was serving as president of the United States and had some cash. But, you know, this, this changed his life. And you think of the of Monticello on the nickel on the $2 bill. It's one of the most famous icons and one of the most famous buildings in America. And if you took the dome off of it, it would be a great building, but it wouldn't be Monticello. And so this was, we go to places like that. And then we go to several restaurants that Jefferson frequented. And my favorite is the... That, that actually still exist these centuries yeah, later? Yeah, several of them still exist. Of course, you know, under new management, let's say. But uh, but 
<laughs> but one was the was the was the Cafe Mécanique. Uh, it's in the Palais Royal. It's actually now I think Paul McCartney's daughter has a shop there. But but when Jefferson was there at this kind of kind of Mall of America kind of thing, uh, although outdoor, um, he went to this cafe. And here's what's so great about it, David: the food was made downstairs in a in the cellar, and then it was sent up on on dumbwaiters on on little elevator food elevators. And Jefferson just thought this was the greatest idea ever. And so when he got back to Monticello, he had dumb waiters built for one for wine in, in the dining room. And he had these these carts that he also saw in France where you, the food would be put in and and closed and then it would be rolled in like on a on a rolling table to the chairs. And he just I mean, he just like a child, he just fell in love with this. So we go there and look. I mean, there's nothing left of it, but we go to such places and so Paris is, and then of course we give people plenty of free time just to go do Paris. They they go up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and 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 drink champagne. Or I went last time to Napoleon's tomb, which is really spectacular. They go to the Louvre or or to several of the other great museums to look at art. And so we want them. Obviously, it's Jefferson, but for many of these people, it's their first time in France. And with with the help of of me and and our tour company, and also Beth Kaler, whom you know. Uh, who comes along and loves France. Uh, we get people to the places they want to get to, to see something of Paris. But then all good things must end. We get on this luxury coach. And by when I say coach, it is to a luxury coach in America what our coaches are to like a school bus. And we get on and we then uh, work our way to the south of France and we see the classical antiquities of the south of France that so inspired Jefferson. And we go to Nîmes and... You know, stay in a hotel and ha and eat eat well. All the all the food, of course, is great. And then we go over to the Maison Carré, and I, it's been beautifully restored. It was built in the first century of our era, and it if you if you can Google it, anyone who's interested. Uh, but it's a it's a rectangular uh, temple, uh, and Jefferson fell in love with it. He, architecture was his favorite delight, he said, and he spent a lot of time studying it. And then when Virginia decided to have a new capital uh, building um, in Richmond, he was asked by Virginia, knowing that he was the most aesthetically accomplished of all Virginians, to make a recommendation. He said, oh, there's only, there's only one thing you can do here. You've got to have the, a model of the Maison Carré. And so he had a plaster model made, which you can still see in Richmond. And they built it, even though it, it wasn't a very convenient state capital. It's had to be added onto in all sorts of ways. But but this is the, the power of Jefferson's aesthetic mastery that George Washington deferred to him. John Adams deferred to him. John Randolph of Roanoke deferred to him. Everyone realized that among other things, whatever else Jefferson is, he's the nation's leading esthete. He's the nation's leading expert on painting, on sculpture, on music, on dance, uh, on architecture. And so everyone realized there's one and only one Thomas Jefferson. So we go to those places, and again, we give people free time, so they go to cafes. I remember when we were in um, Narbonne, which is um, a beautiful city on the old Roman road to Spain, and we got to see a, a piece of the Roman road last time we were there, and then uh, we, we, we had free time. I went into this market, this, like, this covered market, and you can't even believe it, David. There would be like 40 varieties of fresh fish, you know, from octopus to, you name it, to shark. And then there would be rabbits 
and there'd be turkeys and there'd be pheasants and doves and pigeons all for sale to eat and 300 different types of cheese and 40 different types of apple cider. And this market was just like, it was the largest market of fresh dead food that I had ever seen in my life, vegetables and animals and fish. So again, we're back to Jefferson and his love of the French food and culture. But, um, you know, I know because I've learned this from you, his time in France had a real dramatic effect on his socioeconomic view, his political view of the world. And uh, there's a couple of stories that you have shared of occurrences where he would meet with French peasants and a lot of that made it back to America. So he saw what he saw something that maybe nobody else would have seen, which is that France is like looking in a dark mirror, a cracked mirror. And when he saw what had gone wrong in France, the 1% had everything, the 99% had nothing. Oh, oh, tell that story about him meeting the French peasant woman. That's so good. Well, this is where he begins to talk about distribution of, of, of wealth. He's, he's walking around Fontainebleau. You know, he's, he's striding around. He loved to walk. He walked more in France than at any other time in his life. And he sees, he, he catches up with this peasant woman and she's walking somewhere and he gets into stride with her and, and his French isn't great, but it's good enough. And they start to talk and she tells him about her life and about how hard she has to work for just a penny and how she doesn't always have food on the table and, um, you know, how many hours per week the average person, peasant works and he writes about this in a letter to Madison. And then at the end, he gave her, I think, eight sous. So like what we would, like a penny. It'd be like my giving you a penny. And she burst into tears of gratitude. And so then Jefferson gets to his um, study and he writes a letter to Madison and says, we can't let this happen in the United States. There is no just reason that this woman should be desperately poor. Poor is Okay. But everyone, I'm paraphrasing now, using our terms, but everyone has a right to a living wage if they are willing to work. He said, we must figure out how to prevent this from happening, or we must have mechanisms to redistribute property somehow so that we don't let it all wind up in the hands of the few at the expense of the many. He said, people by being born have a right to subsistence plus, and if they're starving, as they're starving in France, that is not okay. That has to be stopped. And if that means we have to go in and take money from the richest people and redistribute it downward, we will do it because you have a you have a natural right to a subsistence plus, but you only have a social privilege to vast accumulations of property. And I hope this never happens, says Jefferson. I hope we never get to that point. As long as we have the West, maybe we'll never get to that point. But if we ever do, where the 1% control everything or less than 1% and the masses are suffering then we must have mechanisms to write that. And if you don't, guess what? You're going to get the French Revolution. You're going to get the storming of the Bastille. You're going to get the reign of terror. So you, if you don't proactively work on these questions, they will bite you. And so Jefferson, I love this side of Jefferson. This is also when he wrote the Earth Belongs to the Living letter and so on. Let, let me be the, uh, the other side of that. It would have been good if he could have translated that into enslaved people as well. But of course, of, you of know, course, and we can't, of and, and, and as always, we can't ignore that. But it, you know, it does show a real good humanitarian side of him, and and the fact that he did bring that back to America, uh, almost a bit of a socialist. 
it isn't. You know, when I mention this from time to time in a lecture or even in a performance, there will be people who push back and say, that didn't happen. That could not have happened. That's communism. That's socialism. Jefferson didn't say that. And I say, well, here's the letter. You decide. Remember, he says, I hope this never has to happen. I hope we never get into this situation. But he did say it because he believes, David, that let's take let's take North Dakota. There are 760,000 North Dakotans. Jefferson believes that anyone who's willing to work should be able to have the basic fruits of life. Yeah, it's okay to be poor, but not desperate. Yes, because that's a social construct. That's not natural. That's a social construct when, when you have a tiny number of extremely rich people. It's in, it's that enlightenment thought. We're only as strong as the weakest of us. But Governor Morris was there at about the same time, the high-toned Pennsylvania uh, Federalist, and he was like flirting with ladies and eating the greatest meals in the world and complaining bitterly about the French masses and you know complaining about French diplomacy. So he was a privileged American in Paris who didn't really give a darn about the suffering of, of the mass of French people. And Jefferson was a privileged man in Paris, and he felt it. And maybe there's a slight condescension, you know, walked with a peasant woman, gave her eight sous. But even so, Jefferson meant it. And he wrote a letter to Lafayette and said, you got to get out here. you got to get out into the countryside to see how actual people live and suffer. He said, you can never be a great leader until you go out amongst the people, maybe incognito, because you otherwise they treat you too well. And you need to look into their kitchens and you need to say you're tired and need to rest so you can get in their beds maybe and find out if, if they're comfortable. But you need to go look at the lives of the, the least people in your culture and ask hard questions about why that could be. Now, Jefferson understood that some people are bums, some people are lazy. Uh, you know, we all know this. Some people uh, are mentally handicapped. He's not suggesting some sort of a kind of a, a rigid socialist approach, but he's saying there's something wrong with abject poverty in a nation of plenty. Do you touch on any of this kind of stuff when on, on yeah, I lecture. Tour? So we get we you know we get to places and if they have a lecture room or a, a meeting room, we we have a beautiful bottle of wine. Of course, almost all wine is great in France, and some um, hors d'oeuvres. And then I will raise a question. I'll take I'll, I'll hand out a letter. Or I'll, I'll quote something of Jefferson, or I'll start a conversation about this. So there's instruction, but as at the Lewis and Clark trip, the instruction is casual, not very formal, because it's not really about that. I mean, I want everyone to come away with a really a, a strong understanding of Jefferson and what France. What a great way to see France. I, I, is, oh, yeah. uh, how many people go? Is there a limit? Do you put a cap on how many can go? We cap it about 25 because we don't want it to be that thing, you know, where you've got a busload of people getting out and they're wandering around and they're on whisper sets and there's an umbrella. And we, we want it to be more intimate. And I wish it could just be like 15, but it would just be too expensive for people. But we cap it at 25 so that it's, a, it's, it's, and you know, and also I should say, when I'm in Europe and particularly in France, the last and the very last thing I want to appear is a bunch of Americans in their, in their sweats, um, moving around with their big voices and their big body language and kind of overwhelming a cafe or overwhelming a museum. You know, we, I always tell people when we, when we, have our orientation. We're having one this week, by the way, by Zoom. And I say, we are guests in France. It's their country. It's their language. It's their system. We are guests and we must always behave with the grace 
and the humility of guests it doesn't always work but it usually works and you know the people who I bet you are, keep a pretty good people. handle on that yeah because you know there's I was just talking to my daughter Catherine about this even when we when I lived in England and now when she lives in England we lower our voices we talk in a more restrained way. We we hold our bodies in a little bit different way. And the last thing we ever want to be is, oh, that guy. You know, that the the brash, big bodied, well, egotistical. You, you, you can't help it. when you go abroad, you're representing your own country. But you should represent it at its best and not at its worst. And you should always be gracious and remember that even in Britain, you are a guest. If they don't have ice for your drink, you don't throw a fit in the pub. You realize that's their system. And when they come to the U.S., they have to put up with our system. And there, <laughs> there are lots of things about our system or that they don't particularly like. like. But before we're done, you know, I know that these are ongoing. The easiest way for people to find out about it is to go to the website, jeffersonhour.com. But <laughs> it would be tough for you to, to pick what's what your favorite one is, I, I, I guess. But... I'm guessing Lewis and Clark and France are both near that top of the list. It's apples and oranges, my friend, because Lewis and Clark is what I love most, as I know you do too. America, America with a capital A, the American West. There's something about, you know, that's why we live here and not in Minneapolis or not in Chicago or not in Tampa, Florida. And so I love that. And and, and when I'm out there, like this year, I, I had to climb the Wendover Death March twice. And each time, at about the two-thirds mark, I think, no one but an imbecile would do this more than once. <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course, I have this advantage because we get the lens through which to do it. Anyway, thank you. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.